Retreat now is a memory at this very moment. Ask yourself, what is the winter's retreat? And then, of course, the answer is a memory. And that's the story of one's life, isn't it? Everything is a memory that isn't present here and now. And as you remember, winter's retreat, New Year's, Christmas, last year or whatever. So memory is like that. We have, a, as human beings, we have these retentive memories, so we remember a lot of things. And so, uh, and yet, we can live in a world of memories. And this is when, when Buddhists say we live in a world of illusion, you know, or delusion. We create, we cling to memories. And we give them uh, a reality that they really don't have once you investigate them. You look at them, what are they? they they're nothing. They're like soap bubbles. They're foam on the sea. There's nothing substantial. There's no essence to them. No substance. No memory is anicca dukkha nata. And the sense of a self is uh, is takes memory, doesn't it? You have to remember, I am this person, I was born at this time, and I've done this and done that. I'm a monk, or I'm a nun, or I'm a anagarika, or I'm a lay person. I'm not a Buddhist, I am a Buddhist. Only sense of I am is still memory. That's why in investigating Namma, you know, not to, we're not trying to uh, get rid of our memories. You know, memory is a, is a valuable thing, but to cling to them, to be attached to memory out of ignorance is, of course, the cause of suffering. So people, you know, is looking for themselves. As they They don't know who they are maybe, so they're looking for some identity, some place where you belong, or some place you feel at home. And still, it's all based on memory, you know, the fact that I, I feel, whatever I feel at this moment, it's, I can recognize the feeling is like this, but then to claim that feeling is mine and then create a whole sense of my past, my future, myself in regards to this is is all just uh, illusion. So the Buddha encouraged us to, to break through the illusion. doesn't mean we don't remember anything, but we know what memory is. We know its limitation. We know, you know, when it's appropriate, when it's not. We're no longer bound and identified and limited and programmed and conditioned and victim of what we remember. So over the past few years, many years now, my monastic life, I, I dissolve memories. I practice the, the uh, dissolving of self in the sound of silence. So this is, this is my technique. I, tune in to this vibratory whatever it is present here and now and the sense of myself arises as, as, as a person as Ajahn Sumedho or whatever with a feeling of uh, you know maybe feeling of 
uh, dread or joy or fear or boredom or whatever, despair, and I let it dissolve into the sound of silence. So the, the self dissolves. It doesn't, it's not self-sustaining. Now this you have to be dedicated to, to because uh, in very critical moments then the self is very strong. You know, like if I feel threatened, somebody's threatening me personally, challenging me or threatening me, the, the sense of myself, uh, the ego becomes very strong. So, you know, you, you know, somebody challenging or threatening or criticizing, blaming me, then I, I can get very, you know, I feel this kind of defensiveness. I, I'm on the alert or uh, I've got to protect myself. All these kind of memories come up. So in training oneself in say in pawana, developing the path is in dissolving these, using this. That's why I found this uh, sound of silence so useful because it, it's, uh, you know, once you begin to appreciate it, it's always, it's always present here and now, available every moment. And even when you're being threatened, uh, you know, you can refer to it. So then, uh, in the past, you know, over the years, uh, when, when being challenged or being criticized, then I keep dissolving this, this sense of a self in this stillness. So that it doesn't mean I, I kind of can't deal with life, but it means my, re my response to life is different than if I just followed my, the, the ego tendencies. You know, the ego, if I'm being challenged or criticized, my ego, my ego tendency is to get very defensive. You know, so I get, you know, I can get, you know, I have to defend myself or I, ha I can get very aggressive. Somebody's being too difficult. I can, you know, feel I have to really put them in their place and, you know, stop them or do something. <laughs> and uh, these are the ego or the sakya ditti. Or I can get caught in, in just feeling worthless or, you know, people don't love me anymore. I try hard to, to do my duties and all the thanks I get is a slap in the face, a lot of criticism and blame. Then I can go into the sulking mode. My ego can, can sulk because it's not fair to be criticized unfairly, is it? <laughs> so, uh, but then the awareness of this, you know, is that it dissolves into the stillness, into the silence the sulking or the defensiveness or the tendency towards aggression. Now this is where, you know, in monastic life, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, ground for training like this. Because, uh, you know, we're not here to promote ourselves or be competitive or, you know, to be somebody. The whole idea of the samana is to is to penetrate the Dhamma, to see the, the see reality, to know the reality, to be free from the illusion. So that's why we're here. You know, we're not here to. I know I'm not here to prove that I'm somebody important, or or if I do have that feeling, I'm a, I bring it into consciousness. You know, I've got to prove myself. It's still a sakya ditti. Once I see it and know it, then I can let it dissolve. It, it's not, you know, it has no, no self-sustaining ability. So when there's no ego, when there's when there's no ego, you know, I'm not clinging to to sakyaditi anymore. There's still consciousness and awareness, alertness, intelligence, still operating. Full, full on. 
And it isn't compromised or distorted with the sakyaditi, the sense of myself being a victim of my habits, being lost in my reactions and emotional uh, reactions to being threatened or criticized or blamed. So this is uh, this is an encouragement to to uh, you know to, to recognize the the value of the samana life. Uh, it's uh, to me this is the whole purpose of it to be free from suffering. It's not to become some kind of Buddhist monk and and do all kinds of things. Sometimes we we can we want to be special. We want to feel ourselves as specially gifted or special case. I think maybe I was uh, like the you know the ego likes to be a special case. Remember as a growing up, you know the worst thing I wanted, you know the worst thing I feared was I was just kind of an ordinary person. I always wanted to be a special kind of gifted, talented, special person. To just say, oh, he's just an ordinary, you know, student. Nothing special about him. Being feel insulted. Because uh, my ego is the one that wants to be somebody. Special, I, you know, like uh, special especially gifted or especially talented or famous or or uh, whatever, you know, whatever special way I could regard myself I would uh, incline to that. Well, then in, uh, in my life with Lung Po Cha, in the beginning years of monastic life, I was special because I was the only Western monk in the monastery. So I got a, I got my fill of being special, even though Lumpa Cha trying to not treat me as special. You can't help but being special when you're the only Western monk in a Thai monastery in some remote part of Thailand, where everybody's half your size. <laughs> so you stand out, you know, wherever you are, even in, when you're a junior monk, the, you know, the most junior monk, you still taller than than the senior ones and the and Lumbachar and whiter <laughs> so uh, and this is special you know being now but then the point you know of the practice was to observe witness the puru the puto being aware of this this ego because in some ways, when I like being special, in other ways it was, is, uh, you know, burdensome. To always have to, to be standing out and, and everybody looking at you and, and uh, so forth. And you, sometimes you really, uh, you know, just wanted to hide away. Find some remote place and hide because you, you didn't want to be special. You wanted to just disappear. Well, this is still the ego wanting to disappear and not be special. You know, so, you know, wanting to be humble. Uh, I admire humility. So, you know, I didn't want to be an arrogant special monk. I wanted to be a special monk that's very humble. <laughs> so then I got everything. I got this title, Chao Kun, and everything. So special in all kinds of ways. But then in terms of Sakyadite, you know, you look and see what, you know, the, the, the sense of a self, the, the self identified with a title, the self identified with a position, me identified with my title, with my position, with my appearance, with my, uh, years in the Sangha, and so forth. This sense of me and mine in regards to these conventions, because they are conventions. So now, in seeing this, you know, you, this is awareness, sati and panya operating. So you begin to notice this sense of me being a high ranking monk, 
And you recognize that's, that's just, that's a convention, but to attach to that and to, you know, to, to use that is the way I relate to life. You know, you can see this, this is foolish. It would be foolish to do that. It would be, you know, the sure road to misery. So what's ordinary then is no self because there's nothing special about sound of silence. You know, you can't build, you know, you can say, I have the sound of silence, I'm a trained person, but you've missed the point then. Because it's not a matter to build a sense of identity with it. That's what we're trying to get out of, this habit of identifying with attainments or achievements or special abilities or insight. You know, so you you contemplate this. This is, this, this, this sound of silence, it's not like Mozart, not special like that, not like Bach, not like the Beatles, <laughs> or whatever your music tastes are, with special, special melodies and special, you know, beautiful uh, uh, kind of uh, effects. It's just like nothing really. And yet once you recognize it, the, the suffering goes. Because the suffering is, is the, this ignorance, this, this sense of a self out of ignorance that we create through, through being somebody, through being special, through being a person, a personality. You know, so even in, even if I'm just an ordinary monk, you know, I'm still create myself as a separate ordinary monk. We're all ordinary monks together. And so that's, uh, you know, but we're still separate because I'm an ordinary monk, you're an ordinary monk. We're all ordinary. And that's still an illusion of a self, isn't it? Whether I'm, I'm extraordinary and you're ordinary, or we're all ordinary, or nobody's ordinary. This is all memory, illusion, sense of a self. So when you give up that, let go of that, there's still consciousness. So when there's no self, when there's still consciousness operating. So we recognize that. There's a there's awareness with consciousness. Now, Contemplate that. Awareness, ability to reflect on the way it is here and now. So, you, you know, we can observe, you know, the, the ego is very obvious. Like Sakya, put it in the Pali term, Sakya Ditti. It's so obvious. It's blatant. It's always about me and mine and my feelings and and you and what I think and what I feel and and all the rest. It's the whole history of my life. It's uh, it's uh, full of this, full of memories, longings, regrets, passions, disappointments, fears, desires. And it can be quite interesting. That'd be interesting to write just from the ego to write my ego down and have it published as a bestseller. <laughs> I don't know if it would ever be that. And then I'd be special, wouldn't I? I'd be accomplished writer. Get invited to, to speak in on the uh, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> and people would find that interesting, you know, the, the history, biography of Lumpasumato and so forth. But it is, you know, it is just perception, memory, words, language, about past. It's how, you know, how, you know, one wants to convey it or write it down or remembers it in the present. But when you let go of all that, and then there's no need to do it, to write or to be anything because there's consciousness with awareness. Now this is the 
way of liberation. This is the, the direct path. It's as simple as that. Nothing special about it. It's not an attainment. It's not like I've, you know, I've attained it to, because I, I'm such a, you know, advanced type of monk. If I start thinking like that, and I'm aware that that's just more sakyaditi. So it is ordinary then. It's the ordinariness of awareness, consciousness. Consciousness is completely ordinary. It's nothing special. We're born, when we're born, we we're, we operate as a conscious form. You know, so it, it's just a natural way of things. Before you have any identity, before you start thinking, you know, you, you're still, there's still consciousness. But now that we do think, and we, we have language, we have memory, we have, we've, we've created the suffering through attachment, through ignorance and attachment, so then the dukkha, the first noble truth, becomes more uh, real for us. Because even with all the best conditions, the best memories, there's still this inevitable sense of something lacking, something missing, separation, that comes through this, through ignorance of the Dhamma. When we're identified with a separate form as our way of, of experiencing uh, consciousness, if I am this body and and then I experience everything through memories, through a sense of self, through the sense of me and mine. You know, even with, with uh, you know, the, the best in, of, of those conditions, it's still, it's still separating. One still feels separated or incomplete or unfulfilled because that's the way it is. When, 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 you're, when you're identified with sankhara, with conditioned phenomena, that's, it, that's its nature. It's, it's about separation, about rising and ceasing, coming and going, beginning and ending. That's the way all sankharas are. So if, if there's any, you know, if you don't break through the illusion of attachment to sankharas, then even the best sankharas, still unsatisfactory. So, so this is why this, this is a very direct teaching of the Buddha. Awakened attention, reflecting on Dhamma the way it is. And this takes patience because, you know, one thing is that when we're attached to memories, the ego tends to not be very patient. You know, you want to get rid of suffering. You know, I don't want to suffer anymore. I want to be free from suffering. And my ego d- says this. My ego doesn't doesn't like suffering. So as long as I try to work from the ego position, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, one feels just a sense of despair because uh, no matter how hard you try, you still don't seem to get anywhere after a while. You get very controlling, you know, trying to... S- protect yourself all the time so that you you know you try to keep away the dangerous things or confrontational situations or uh, critical people or responsibilities or difficulties things like this you know you've got to think of me and protect myself from the from the world around me it's still it's not liberation to operate from fear and self. So then the puto, awakened awareness, consciousness, informed with panya, with wisdom, rather than ignorance. You know, the ignorant person is conscious, but operating out of habits that they've acquired through ignorance through just con- the conditioning process. So the ego, or Sakyaditi's condition, Sila Bhattabharamasa is conditioned, it's convention, 
cultural conditioning, social conditioning, all of that is is still conditioned. Which ikecha, doubt, is a result of attachment to thinking, blind attachment to thinking, doubt, you know. So if you try to think your way to enlightenment, you never be quite sure you're there. <laughs> and, you know, you can think. Some people are good at, you know, believing their thoughts. So they, they, you know, they can be very assertive and very confident, but it's still coming from the ego. So that's where the, this, this path of the Buddha is awakenness rather than attainment. Reflecting, observing. Now, just observing Sakyajiti, the sense of myself as a person, separate person. Now, I really, I really feel this. You know, I'm not trying to get rid of it or, or take a stand against it. I'm I'm studying it. I'm feeling self. I'm willing to be self, but at the same time, be aware of it. You know, be this sense of me, and my feelings, and my thoughts, and my opinions. It's not 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 criticizing, but getting to really, you know, know it. It's like this. So I'm not afraid to be. Uh, and to feel, and to really, uh, you know, bring full into consciousness, my, even the most unpleasant parts of my sakya ditti. You know, I'm not afraid to be totally conceited, arrogant, stupid, angry, perverse, difficult, confused, despairing. It's not that I've avoided any of that, just by tuning in the sound of silence and, and, let, and, you know, just trying to stop the whole process. It's, it's a willingness to feel life, to feel the suffering of self, but at the same time to be aware of it. That which is aware, that which is conscious and aware, is not self. So I'm not, you know, to try, trying to be, uh, get out of anything. Avoid or take a shortcut, you know, bypass the self by just shutting it off. But getting to know it, you know, so, so that because it's a karma. It's a vipaka karma. It arises, a sense of self, of, of me and mine and my feelings and my body and my age and my abilities or my mistakes, my problems. But there's also this, this strong, confident steadiness of awareness that can allow the Sakyadity to be what it is. And then it's, then of course you see it in the perspective of Dhamma rather than in terms of of uh, the self, the Sakyaditi will step in and say, "You shouldn't feel. Uh, you shouldn't feel uh, if you're feeling uh, some kind of negative thought. You shouldn't feel this way." These, my my Sakyaditi is very critical. It says, "You shouldn't uh, feel. Uh, you should love people equally, and you shouldn't uh, dislike people." And then I try to be fair about everything. And say, even the people I dislike, you know, they try hard. And, and I'm very magnanimous uh, on that level of, of uh, intellect. But then in terms of feeling, what is it like to dislike somebody? You know, so it's not a matter of, of trying to, to say I like everybody or feel guilty about disliking somebody, but really disliking somebody, but no longer attaching to it, but recognizing it. That I create this illusion of somebody and my own feeling of aversion to them is like this. This is a creation. 
can seem very real, but it's not if you really if you're not you know afraid of it or trying to to dismiss it or analyze it. It is what it is. So then they you know it's by investigating. Now that's this this is kind of you know the essence also of Buddha Dhamma, the Yoniso Manasinkara, getting getting to the root, getting to where it arises. You know, it's about investigating, not about just trying to control things, get rid of things, get rid of your defilements, your kilesas, and try to become a, a saint. It's not about trying to become this perfect samana that's full of loving kindness. Even though that is a beautiful ideal, I'm not against ideals, but if you just attach, then, you know, you you end up trying to play role, you end up role-playing or feeling guilty because you you can't really make yourself into a kind of permanent saint according to the ideal. So at every moment we can, you know, we can at least be aware of the monsters inside, the, the brutes, the, stupid, the stupid ones, the silly, the immature, the selfish, the good, the desire to, the longing to be a saint, uh, wanting to be, uh, you know, pure and and radiant, wanting to attain, wanting to achieve, and whatever, you know, whether it goes on one extreme, the positive side, or down to the nadir of despair, the awareness is the constant factor. You know, so awareness is the stillness that we that is natural. That is is not self. It's not not a. It doesn't separate me from you. It doesn't create division. It's unitive. So the division it takes. I have to start thinking I'm here and you're there, and start I'm Ajahn Sumedho and you're somebody else. <laughs> and that's obviously you know that's conventionally all right. I'm not criticizing that. But to recognize, to discern the difference. So in this sense of discerning and wisdom and consciousness, this is unitive. This is where the separation dissolves. And then the problems, of course, cease because, you know, there's nothing to sustain them, nothing to, to, to kind of keep them alive and because they're no longer clinging or believing in it anymore. So this week we're, we're having a different um, monks and nuns from the various branches coming to Amravati and a uh, chance to uh, enjoy each other's company and whatever happens it's still Dhamma, isn't it? You know, it's not a matter of of just trying to be nice and uh, or trying to confront or make problems, but to be, you know, to to trust in your awareness of what you're feeling. An attitude, like Ajahn Majira was saying this morning, of welcoming and conviviality is it's just good manners, isn't it? When you're welcoming people to your home. <laughs> you know, just a uh, chance to have uh, your fellow summoners come and visit. So the sense of welcoming is, is, a, is a kind of conventional uh, encouragement, an attitude of welcoming. But then, of course, we have Sangha meetings and issues and projects and differences of opinion and these arise but I encourage you to observe you know keep more aware of your what you're feeling you know how things affect you rather than than giving so much importance to trying to make decisions or trying to understand each other and and explain or defend or blame or whatever we how we tend to react in these meetings. Uh, the the point is really to to be to awaken 
rather than to try to solve all the problems and be understand each other and and uh, make decisions and that everybody has to abide by and everybody has to agree with and and on and on and the ideals that we have of communal life. Notice how easy it is to blame and and we're very blaming society. You know, the, you know, listen to the news, and it's always trying to blame somebody. It's just uh, endless. You know, blame Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, blame the Tories, blame Mrs. Thatcher, blame Bush, blame Putin, blame the Russians, blame the Osama bin Laden, <laughs> blame the Muslims, Blame, 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 blame. (laughs) Whose fault is it? Now that's how we're culturally conditioned. You know, I saw this years ago and I was observing this tendency to blame. You know, know, somebody says, oh, something's gone wrong. Who's to blame? Immediately, that's the first reaction I had. Where are we going to put the blame on? And I thought, why do I always do that? Why do I always have to, you know, the first reaction I have when something goes wrong or there's some problem, who's to blame for it? And then uh, then I get blamed, too. And they say, Ajahn Tomatoes, too domineering, blah, blah, blah. And they get blamed. And I say, then I think, who's blaming, who's to blame for blaming me? And then we've got to sort this out. Uh, let's get together and have a meeting and sort this out. Uh, okay, you think I'm to blame, but I think you're to blame. And what does that amount to? War, usually. <laughs> it's like the Iranians uh, arrested 15 British uh, seamen. Who, and it's really funny because they're out in the waters, you know, and they Whose water is this? They're in Iran, they're Iraq's water. And it's really ridiculous. And uh, and this goes on. This is big news now on the radio. And, uh, who's to blame? The Iranians say it's the British were in Iranian water. And the British say we were not. We were in Iraqi water. And we were arrested in Iraq water. And the Iranians say, no, you weren't. You were arrested in Iranian water. Now this is madness. <laughs> and so they, they get international, you know, embassies and, and Americans come in and the EU and the United Nations. <laughs> the whole world's in a big uproar about what water were the British in? And it must be hard to set boundaries in water, you know. <laughs> and then the, the Iranians want the British to apologize and say, we're terribly sorry because we were in your water and we shouldn't have. <laughs> and the British won't, won't apologize. They've got the British seamen to say they were in Iranian water, but nobody believes that because they've probably been pressured <laughs> so it's just the way of the world isn't it this is this is the the uh, absurdity of international politics <laughs> it's like little little fights i used to have when i was a schoolboy <laughs> Now we we're all guilty of this in our own way, you know, and this is this is carried out to absurdity on the international field, but but also, you know, recognize in in our own life here, you know, this is a pattern of of self, of sakyaditi, and it's blaming. I think you can blame you can be heroic and say, Well, I'm to blame, I admit it. It's my fault. I'm a martyr. I will take the blame Mia culpa, 
excuse me, I'm sorry, terribly sorry, terribly, terribly sorry. <laughs> like they wanted Tony Blair to apologize for slavery. Things like this. And it goes on and on. You know, you must apologize. And you must really, you know, rub your nose in the muck. Get down and grovel about how terrible you were to, to have slaves and sell people 200 years ago. <laughs> and I'm not trying to diminish the, the wrongs of the world. But this, it's very important to see this, this tendency we have to demand apologies and, and not forgive and hold things that have happened, you know, long ago. Taking sides, racial prejudices or ethnic biases or class identities. And that it's all just, it's all just uh, memory, attachment to memory out of ignorance. So we do recognize that, you know, slavery is no longer so, you know, something that is socially uh, and politically acceptable. It still goes on. You know, you hear about kinds of slave situations, but at least it's no longer politically accepted or taken for granted like it was, say, 200 years ago. Or in the United States, it wasn't even 150 years ago. Then they, they got rid of slavery, officially anyway, so it is, you know, we recognize that it's, a, you know, it's no longer a form of convention that anyone, you know, any decent person, law-abiding person is going to praise or support. And it is, you know, one does feel sadness and regret and, you know, one's own participation in it. You know, not that I ever had slaves, but, you know, my identities, my ancestral identities, uh, being uh, from an Anglo-Saxon background, were part of the problem maybe. But I can't really feel terribly guilty about it because it doesn't, there's nothing I've ever, ever felt any, uh, uh, you know, that I've ever wanted to promote or or that I've ever regarded as something that should be or whatever. It's just, it's always in my whole lifetime it's been considered a bad thing, slavery. So the ideals we have, like democratic ideals, uh, so these are good and, you know, they're, they're to be reg regarded and respected, but also if we hold to the ideals, then we don't really see the problem. We don't see the way it is. We merely uh, feel angry because uh, life is not what it should be, not the ideal that it should be. And the same with yourself. You know, you can't be as good as you would like to be as an ideal, as good a uh, samana as you imagine you should be, or as pure-hearted and generous and magnanimous and compassionate as you should be. So then one feels guilty. Now this is all Sakya Ditti. Isn't it? If, if I compare myself with ideals and then, you know, because I can't, li because I can't hold to ideals as some kind of self-sustaining uh, position in life, then I feel despair or guilty or frustrated or angry. So that's why in our life here, you know, it's not an ideal life. It isn't supposed to be ideal and perfect and protect us from all things. It's, it's a conventional form to use for awareness. To see through the, to see the the cause of suffering, the attachment, the clinging to views, opinions, sense of a self, to memories, 
to attachment to your emotional habits, attachment to your own critical mind, attachment to your sense of lack of self-worth. Maybe you feel you're not good enough or you're, you're not worthy or things like this. Attach- one can be very attached to that view. So that's why in, in uh, Yoniso Manasikara, getting to the root, we're actually, you know, I'm not trying to convince myself that I'm worthy. But if I feel unworthy, it's like this. I'm willing to feel unworthy. But I'm no longer attaching to it. I'm recognizing it's like this. The sense of me as somebody unworthy is like this. And then it dissolves. The sense of me as being anything, whether being worthy or unworthy, doesn't make any difference. It still dissolves into the silence. But I'm, I was quite willing to feel it, to be, to feel, to accept. But in this very acceptance, then of course, you're allowing something, a condition to be what it is. You're not trying to, to make it into something else or judge it. As soon as you judge it, you've made it more into a problem. You know, you've compounded it, you've complicated it. So that's why when your thinking mind, your analytical mind, you tend to create, com- you create more complexities. And, uh, you know, we become complex personalities. But if we trust in awareness, then the, then the complexities fall away. We're not compounding or creating anything. We're allowing life to flow, conditions that arise, to allow them to arise and cease. Within this, uh, within this uh, being incarcerated in these bodies, within the limitation of these khandhas. But these are limited, but our relationship to them changes from clinging and attachment and identity to recognizing all conditions are impermanent. So you come the silent listener and uh, being the silent listener, the Developing or cultivating, this is pawana. This is the cultivating the machima bhattipata, the middle way. Nothing special. You notice it, you, know, you don't know whether I'm full of my ego or not at any moment, do you? Because you project all kinds of things onto me. You know, you think Ajahn Sumedho is senior monk and big man and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and how do you know this isn't a big ego trip me sitting up here on this high seat telling you about the Dhamma how do you know I'm not this isn't just ego and you can't I mean, you can know what you can know is that that you you know you you hear it affects you like this Thoughts, uh, doubts about whether Ajahn Sumedho is coming from emptiness? Is he, am I speaking from emptiness now or from ego? No, I, I know, but you, you don't really know, do you? So you know that. It's not a matter of trying to figure out me, but to, 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 uh, you know, be able to observe your, your own uh, feelings, you know, and, when, a, when I'm sitting up here talking like this, it feels like this. This you can know. It's a direct knowing. It's not, not a matter of I think or maybe or we should argue about it or we've got to trust Ajahn Zameda or I wouldn't trust him with anything. You, <laughs> you can, I mean, if you can feel those things, but awareness of them, you know, of your own uh, feelings or emotions or thoughts that arise. That awareness then, this awareness isn't me, isn't mine, it's not yours. Consciousness then is, is unitive, is a universal. 
and then the then the conditions are they come and go, they change. Now to establish yourself in that universal is to recognize it. You can't do it from the ego position. You can't create yourself into some kind of universal consciousness. So forget it. The matter of trusting, it's a different different way, isn't it? It's not trying to convince yourself or grasp views, but to trust your awareness. To recognize, trust, realize this. In which you can then, you can at least see your own emotional reactions to this moment, you know, whatever they might be. The awareness and the how how what is happening right now affects you. So then you you begin to recognize. It's this awareness, gate to the deathless, mindfulness path to the deathless, upamadoa matapadang. <laughs> I keep repeating, mindfulness path to the deathless. And then, you know, it's, uh, you know, as you keep, you know, it's something you just keep reminding yourself over and over again till it, till it really, you know, you've, you really know this. It's not a matter of, it's not like convincing yourself. You're not attaching and trying to convince yourself anything. It's just reminding yourself. So that you're, you know, after a while, and, it does. It, you you get this this sense of I, this is reality. This other thing, this sakyaditi stuff, you know, it's okay. I'm not against it. Still, still experience it, but it's no longer the dominating force in consciousness because it's seen. It's known. It's it's uh, it's not no longer grasped out of ignorance.